You're listening to DNA ID, brought to you by Abjack Entertainment. Be sure to check out some of the other great true crime podcasts from this network, including The Murder in My Family, Missing Persons, Scene of the Crime, Zodiac Speaking, Beyond Bizarre True Crime, Citizen Detective, and Campus Killings. All of these podcasts are available for you to binge on right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe where you're listening to this podcast so you don't miss an episode. On March 11, 2019, Detective Eric Contreras, then of the NYPD 102nd Precinct, answered a phone call put through to the Detective Bureau. A female caller identified herself and told him something that seemed crazy. She said that when she was a little girl decades earlier, she was pretty sure she had witnessed the aftermath of a murder. But this didn't come across as a crank call, and the caller wasn't a crackpot. She seemed rational, lucid, and certain of her claims. Furthermore, she said her mother knew about this murder as well. The caller told Detective Contreras, who is now a sergeant, that when she was about 11 years old, she saw her mother's boyfriend, Martin Mata, with some trash bags in the backyard of the Richmond Hill rental row house she shared with her mother. Mata was digging, the bags sitting on the ground nearby. The girl was already curious because the day before, when she was homesick from school, she and her mother had gone to Mata's barbershop, on 161st Street in Queens, New York, where her mother had also previously worked as a hairstylist. This was about a mile from their home. They stopped by because they both needed to use the bathroom. The gate was open, and through the window, they saw Mata mopping up something with bleach. The mother told her daughter to wait outside. She went in, and when she came out, she was crying, and the two left hurriedly, the mother telling the girl not to ask any questions. Later, Mata arrived at their 115th Street house carrying a large black bag. He took it into the basement. The next morning, the little girl heard banging from the basement. She crept down the stairs to take a look. Mata was bent over a table, covered in a makeshift poncho made of a trash bag. It was covered in blood. On the table were a saw and some large knives. He was cutting up something large and feeding bits of whatever was on the table to the dog. Mata looked up and saw the girl and snapped at her to get the hell out of there. So later, when out the window she saw Mata and the trash bags in the backyard and he was digging, she timidly crept outside to get a closer look. Mata saw her. He made her come over and take a good look. Sticking out of one of the trash bags, having punctured the thin plastic, was a bloody bone. The girl ran inside. That night, Mata was cooking something on the stove. He had a large trash bag that he put in the, in the garbage bin outside, and it was picked up by the city trash service the next day. Soon thereafter, Mata laid a new concrete slab down in the backyard. The girl told her mother all that she'd seen. Her mom told her Martin Mata had done something very bad. He had killed someone in his barbershop. She wasn't to tell anyone. 
Mata had threatened to kill them both if they whispered one word of what he'd done. Even though the caller's mother broke things off with Mata within a year of the murder, they were all from the area and he knew how to find them. I suspect, but cannot verify, that she was a victim of domestic violence at Mata's hands. Having witnessed the aftermath of the murder, she and her daughter knew for a fact what Mata was capable of, and they knew that he had buried a body, or parts of one, at a home for which only they were the tenants of record. Neither the girl nor her mother said anything for decades. In fact, the caller had not been certain the whole thing had even really happened. She had sort of suppressed the memory, traumatized by the entire event for much of her life. But then, she reconnected with a friend from childhood and started realizing that the whole thing was not a nightmare but was true. She was now anxious to get off her chest her suspicions that the bones she'd seen as a girl were human and Mata was a killer. Sergeant Contreras had at that time been a Queen's South detective for three years, and he took an immediate interest in the case. He worked it with his partner, Detective Michael Gain. Contreras told the Daily Beast that he took the case personally, No one should be treated this way, he said. The now adult caller told the detective that at the time, she and her mother had lived at 8772 115th Street near Jamaica Avenue in the Richmond Hill neighborhood in Queens, New York. So Contreras went to the house and took a photo of the backyard and showed it to her. She circled an area of the yard covered by a concrete slab. Sergeant Contreras jumped on the specific and detailed information provided by this woman and rounded up Nero, the cadaver dog, to sniff out the backyard of the home. After obtaining permission from the current tenant, Nero went to work, and guess what? He hit on the area of the concrete slab. If you think about that, that's incredible. That dog could smell a body which turned out to be tightly wrapped in plastic, many feet deep in the earth, under concrete, after more than 40 years. The Office of the Medical Examiner and the NYPD's CSI team went to work digging up the slab. There are photos online of like 13 guys just going to town on the row house's small backyard. And under the slab, along a wooden fence, they found something. This next part from the New York Times, quote, John Guido has lived for more than 40 years behind the two-story home at 8772 115th Street, where the remains were found. He said the home had been a rental property, that for decades had housed an endless stream of tenants. In the 1970s, he said, it attracted really bad guys. They broke into my house, he said. He stopped the burglaries by installing a six-foot chain-link fence. Mr. Guido, 69, said he watched as officers combed the weedy, debris-strewn backyard with a police dog on Tuesday. The German shepherd bounded through the lot, barked, and began digging. Thirteen officers, one in a white evidence suit, swarmed and began digging with shovels. They were working near the middle of the yard when Mr. Guido heard one say, hey, and stop digging. They found something, Mr. Guido said. It was a partial human torso, neck and pelvic bone, inside a trash bag. Desiccated tissues still clung to the bones. NBC4 New York reported that it was possible lung and heart tissue. The head, arms, and legs were missing. The medical examiner who examined the bones determined the body was dismembered at the neck, shoulders, and hips. The bones exhibited tool marks pointing to dismemberment with a knife and hacksaw. He concluded that the person the bones belonged to was the victim of homicidal violence. I'm not sure whether the medical examiner could tell or the caller notified the detectives that the victim was a male, but he was indeed a man 
before he was a bundle of bits in a bag in a burrow backyard. The problem was the caller didn't know the victim's name, and neither did her mother. The detectives could not find a missing persons report because the caller couldn't remember exactly when this all happened. She thought it was in the 1979 to 1981 time frame, which turned out to be off. Even if those dates had been correct, detectives cannot just pore over all missing persons reports filed in Queens over a multi-year span. And even if they wanted to, fires and floods had long since destroyed many reports that old. Furthermore, the investigators had no luck trying to find the barbershop, which it turned out was long gone. Attempts to identify the John Doe through traditional methods like STR testing and entry into CODIS went nowhere. So they turned to forensic genealogy. The first step was to send one of the John Doe's bones to Othram to obtain a SNP profile. The first bone didn't yield workable DNA, so a second bone was sent to the Texas-based lab. This time, they were able to obtain a SNP profile suitable for forensic genealogy. At the time, New York State still had not qualified any labs to conduct this analysis, although now two such labs have met the qualifications. The FBI agreed to do the work in an attempt to identify Queen's backyard John Doe. NYC FBI Special Agents Adrian Corson and Lori Giordano uploaded John Doe's profile into both Family Tree DNA and GEDmatch. The results were not promising. The highest centimorgan matches were in the 20s. They started the process of building a family tree, but with those low-level matches, the work was daunting. But then they got a break. As they were working on the forensic genealogy, a living DNA relative of John Doe uploaded his profile. He shared about 800 centimorgans with John Doe. This new upload helped the FBI genealogists narrow things down significantly. They pointed to a man whose first initial is W. He was a man in his 80s living in California, and Sergeant Contreras flew out to see him. W. told the sergeant that he'd been raised in New York, but joined the military and left the area in the 50s. And yes, he knew of a missing uncle who vanished in the 1970s. The investigators also spoke with another DNA relative in Ohio named Gertrude, W's sister. She, too, was in her 80s. Gertrude said to the detectives who arrived on her doorstep, I've been expecting you. You must be here about my missing uncle. Gertrude said that she, too, was from New York, but she left the area in the 1960s. Then she showed the investigators a letter her mother, also named Gertrude, had received in December 1976. Yes, she still had this letter. It was from a man who shared an apartment with the elder Gertrude's brother, named George Clarence Seitz. The letter from the roommate said, George left the apartment around 10 a.m. on December 10th to get a haircut and never returned. The roommate informed Gertrude the elder that he'd filed a missing persons report for her brother George, who had literally vanished into thin air and left all his personal belongings behind in the apartment they shared. Subsequent letters included uncashed checks made out to George from his Social Security benefits and his pension. Gertrude was 78 years old when she received the first letter. She died without knowing what had become of her brother. Gertrude was 78 years old when she received the first letter. She died without knowing what had become of her brother. Her daughter Gertrude had always wondered what had happened to her Uncle George, and so she was unsurprised when the detectives came knocking at her door. 
It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours. Like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Hortons' new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply. The detail in the roommate's letter about the haircut was really significant because, remember, the 2019 caller had originally informed Detective Contreras that she recalled going with her mother to a barber shop owned by Martin Mata and seeing him mopping something up. Then he cut something up, dug up the backyard, and had trash bags with bones in them. Reference DNA samples from W. and his sister Gertrude quickly helped confirm what detectives already knew. Their uncle was George Clarence Seitz, and there was no proof of life for him since the 1970s. However, neither of them could produce a photo of George. The pension records office had burned down, so there were no photos or records there. The school George had attended in New York had long since closed. Even the FBI had no luck finding a photo. So they turned to a forensic sketch artist who worked for the NYPD. Even though he did not have George's skull to work with, he reviewed multiple family photos of George's extended relatives and was able to produce a drawing of what George likely looked like, both when he was younger and at the time of his disappearance. Then a relative managed to dig up a photo of George in his World War I Army uniform, and he looked eerily as the sketches had predicted. Investigators showed the photo an age-progressed sketch of George to the caller and her mother. Neither of them recognized George, even though the mother worked at the barbershop where George had gone to get a haircut on that fateful day. You'd think if he were a regular customer, she would recall that. On the other hand, 50 years had passed, and if George didn't stand out, she very possibly would have had no reason to remember him. Investigators were able to locate Social Security records for George, They proved that he had been cashing his checks until December 1976. After that, they were returned to sender. Further, investigators learned that from the late 1970s until 1985, Martin Mata and his brother owned a barbershop called, very uncreatively, Haircutters. It was within two and a half blocks of the apartment shared by George and his roommate. This from the New York Times, quote, Michelle Jones said she owned a salon called Sistas in Style that operated in the space where Mr. Mata and his brother Benjamin ran their barbershop from the 1970s until 1985. She said that four NYPD officers visited her in early 2019, around the time that Mr. Seitz's bones were found in the backyard of Mr. Mata's former residence. The detectives asked if she knew the Mata's. Ms. Jones told the officers the truth. She did not. But during her time managing the space, 2016 to 2019, she said that random men stopped by asking if she knew the Mottas and telling stories about them. Crazy stuff that they was into gambling, dogfighting, she said. Oh my God, the stories I heard. Then detectives located a very elderly relative of the suspect and interviewed the relative. Investigators couldn't tell me who this was, but he was clearly someone very close to Mata. He recognized George as a regular customer of the barbershop and knew him from the neighborhood. Further, he reported that Mata had admitted to him that he had stabbed George in the back of the head with some shears in order to rob him of the wad of cash he always carried. It was between seven dollars and $8,000 back then, amounting to close to $40,000 in today's money. 
Mata scattered George's remains around Queens, the relative said. The investigators sent cadaver dogs to the barbershop, but they did not hit on anything. It had, after all, been 43 years. Mata had been 29 when he killed George, and now 74-year-old Martin Mata was still alive. The detectives had just a few questions for him. They impaneled a grand jury to consider the case, and they handed down an indictment of Mata for intentional second-degree murder because the crime did not fall into the category of first-degree murder in New York. On November 3, 2021, officers from the Fugitive Apprehension Unit arrested him at his home on 89th Avenue in Jamaica, Queens, and transported him to the 102nd Precinct for booking. He said nothing upon his arrest. However, his adult son, Daniel, who lived with his father, told the Daily News that the investigators had arrested the wrong man. He said, quote, He's innocent that I know of. He's never said anything. It was just weird. They just took him in the morning. Two detectives. It was the weirdest thing. The NYPD held a press conference on November 4th, 2021, announcing the identification of George Seitz and the arrest of Martin Mata for his 1976 murder. NYPD Deputy Chief Jerry O'Sullivan laid out the facts of the two-and-a-half-year investigation. Queens Executive Assistant District Attorney Dan Saunders said, quote, The NYPD undertook what amounts to really a Herculean task to identify the remains that were buried for at least 45 years, and almost miraculously, they succeeded in that task. Mata's first hearing was postponed so he could be outfitted with a hearing device. Then, at his arraignment, he sat quietly and made no statement. He was denied bail and was held at Rikers pending trial. Assistant District Attorney Karen Ross, Deputy Bureau Chief of the DA's Homicide Bureau and Chief of the Cold Case Unit, prosecuted the case. The state worked to pull together all the evidence it would need for trial, including witness statements and the testimony of the tipster who had originally called Detective Contreras and her mother, Mata's girlfriend at the time of the murder. They were just about to pick a jury when Mata decided to take a plea. Ms. Ross told me she was somewhat shocked by this decision. His attorney had requested a plea deal to offer his client to cover all their options, but in his mid-70s, Mata had nothing to lose and possibly his freedom to gain by going to trial. There was a chance a jury would acquit him and he would do no time, versus a plea deal, which would guarantee prison time. But take a plea he did. Perhaps he didn't want his adult son to hear all about his prior arrests and charges, which were not insignificant. Or perhaps he didn't want his family to know what exactly he had done to George Seitz. Well, Karen Ross made sure everyone heard it anyway. Mata pleaded guilty to first-degree manslaughter on October 18, 2022. The sentence he would have been facing had he been convicted after a trial was 25 to life. Because of the plea deal, he got 15 to life based on the laws in effect at the time of the murder. At the sentencing hearing on November 7, 2022, Mata gave no apology in court, but with one word, he admitted to all of it. The judge, in a typical allocution, asked whether on that day in 1976, he intentionally murdered the victim inside the barbershop he owned. And Mata said yes in a very high-pitched, wavery, old man voice. His attorney, Russell Rothberg, told the judge, quote, he is remorseful. Is he? I'll bet he didn't think twice about spending all George's money on himself. ADA Karen Ross addressed the court and touched on Mata's deeds. She said of George, instead of getting a haircut, he got robbed, killed, dismembered, and buried in a backyard where no one would find him for 45 years. 
He threw the head in the garbage and scattered the arms and legs across Queens. She saw him feeding what she believed were body parts to the dog, Ross said of the tipster. She said that the tipster and her mother were intimidated into silence by modest threats. He would say, Do you want to end up like the guy in the backyard and run his finger across the neck, Ross said. George Seitz's niece Gertrude was in court to give a victim impact statement. She was wearing a scarf that George had brought back from his World War I service in France for his sister, Gertrude's mother, a hundred years earlier. She addressed the defendant, saying, My mother died never knowing what happened to her brother. My hope is, each day you spend in prison, you will think about your evil actions, the suffering my uncle must have endured. Queen's Supreme Court Justice Kenneth Holder said to Mata, Frankly, you're like Queen's own Jeffrey Dahmer Light. When he pronounced sentence, he said to an emotionless Mata, I hope they're hard, terrible years. According to CBS News, Mata's son Daniel was visibly upset in court and later said his father never told him about any of this. They got their justice. I'm okay with it, he said. There was not one person who was not disgusted with Mata's greed and callous disregard for the life of an elderly U.S. veteran. How low can you get? Martin Mata had a significant record when he was arrested for the murder of George Seitz. None of his crimes merited entry of his DNA into CODIS, but he had several prior arrests, including a couple that were sealed by the court, likely because of the nature of the victim. According to ShoreNewsNetwork.com, quote, Some who knew Mata said he began exhibiting strange behavior after learning the police were reopening the investigation into Seitz's death. He reportedly slept inside a barbershop where he continued to work, end quote. Mata must have been shaking in his boots when the news hit the New York area that a body had been uncovered under a concrete slab in a queen's backyard. He knew that knock on the door was coming. This is the first forensic genealogy case in the state of New York leading to a conviction. This long, cold case marks the first application in New York City of forensic genetic genealogy, Queens DA Melinda Katz said after the guilty plea. No matter how much time has passed, we will use every tool at our disposal to achieve justice. It is precisely for cases such as this one that I created the cold case unit where I became district attorney. For the gruesome murder of a World War I veteran, the defendant eluded arrest for more than 46 years. Now he is headed to prison, thanks to a collaboration between the NYPD and our cold case unit. So what do we know about George? George Clarence Seitz was born on December 12, 1894, in New York. His parents were Charles and Julia Seitz. His siblings, all deceased, were William, Irene, and Gertrude. As we know, he served in France in World War I. He was part of the 1101st Aero Replacement Squadron, stationed at the Colombay Le Bel Airdrome. His service extended from 13th April 1918 to February 1919, well after the armistice. He returned to New York and civilian life in June of 1919. Back on U.S. soil, George married a woman named Florence in New York in 1932, and then married a woman named Anna in New York in 1937. Sometime between 1940 and 1950, they separated, and Anna moved in with her sister's family. I was told that George never had any children. I'm not sure why his marriages ended, but I did read that George may have suffered from undiagnosed PTSD from his wartime experiences. He was eccentric and a lunar. He dressed in a business suit daily, but would wander his Queens neighborhood rather than go to any specific destination. 
He stayed in touch with his far-flung siblings via letters, and they reported that he worked as a chauffeur. But he was long retired by the time of his slaying. He lived on veterans' benefits, and he clearly did not trust banks, as many who survived the Great Depression did not. George preferred to carry his life savings on his person. So when he went to pay for a service or consumer item or a haircut, he pulled out a wad of cash and peeled off the bills he needed before placing the roll back in his pocket. It was the bankroll that attracted the attention of Martin Mata. George was 81 when he was killed, two days before his 82nd birthday. After he was identified, Gertrude was given custody of her uncle's remains. He received a military burial and is now interred in Dayton, Ohio, with a gravestone reading, George C. Seitz, Corporal U.S. Army, World War I, Beloved Brother, Beloved Uncle, Rest in Peace. And it denotes his birth and death dates. Sergeant Contreras told me that as a young investigator, this case was fun to work. It involved a lot of Detective 101, old-school hands-on work with newspaper articles, interviews, property records, and old files. Nowadays, he pointed out to me, a lot of detective work is all technology-based, involving cell phones, GPS, video footage, social media, and so on. Thanks to him for talking with me about this case. Recently, I let listeners know about a new benefit available to them called an Abjack Insider subscription that's available through Apple Podcasts. An Abjack Insider subscription will give listeners ad-free access to every bit of DNA ID content published, both past episodes and future episodes. It will also give you benefits like early access and bonus content. Head over to Apple Podcasts and click on the DNA ID show page or the Abjack Entertainment channel to start a free trial. Thanks for listening to this episode of DNA ID. If you'd like to listen to the show ad-free and help support the show in the process, please head over to patreon.com slash DNA ID. And if you're interested in some fun DNA ID merch, visit the store at customizedgirl.com slash S slash DNA ID podcast. To contact the show, please email us at DNA ID podcast at gmail.com. Follow us on social media at DNA ID podcast on Instagram at DNA ID podcast on Twitter or on Facebook at facebook.com slash DNA ID podcast. Finally, if you want to visit our website, go to dnaidpodcast.com. You'll be able to get all the episodes of the show, leave comments on episodes that I can respond to, and you can even leave voicemails. You'll get all the latest news about the show and important updates. Find links to our social media, merch, and a lot more. It's really your one-stop shop for everything DNA ID. DNA ID is written, researched, and hosted by me, Jessica Betancourt. It's produced by me and Mike Morford of Abjack Entertainment. Music by Connor Betancourt. Check out our other collaborative podcasts, Scene of the Crime, Missing Persons, and Beyond Bizarre True Crime. There's no way to prepare for the impact an accident makes on your life. That's why we've spent 40 years getting ready for that moment when you need compassion and immediate action. The right doctors, investigators, our team of experienced attorneys, and your free consultation is already in place. So if you've been hurt, remember, the Farrah Safety Net is right here to catch you. All you have to do is call Farrah and Farrah. It's what we built. Tampa. Hey there, wine lovers. Elevate your holiday wine time with wineenthusiast.com. 
Wine Enthusiast has everything you need to transform your entertaining space into the ultimate wine spectacle of the season. From wine storage to glassware, personalized accessories, furniture, and more. Uncork a little joy this year with Wine Enthusiast. Wells Fargo presents one of the surest ways to grow your money. A Wells Fargo CD account where you can earn a 5.00% annual percentage yield on an 11-month term with a minimum opening deposit of $5,000. Visit a Wells Fargo branch or wellsfargo.com backslash CD rates to open a CD account and start growing your savings with us. Wells Fargo Bank, N.A., member FDIC. 